Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is May 14th, and we're broadcasting live in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. This program uh, will feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing conflict in the Republic of Sudan, where one of the latest victims of the violence is renowned vocalist Shadin Gadud. In West Africa, 33 people reportedly killed uh, in fighting in the state of Burkina Faso. In Southern Africa, Botswana has placed a ban on the export and import of grain and sorghum uh, in this Southern African state. And in Ghana, uh, the opposition National Democratic Congress Party has selected former President John Mahama as his candidate for uh, the 2024 national elections. In the second hour, we listened to a report on the controversy surrounding allegations made by the United States ambassador to South Africa, claiming that the African National Congress government is selling arms to uh, the Russian Federation. We will also listen to an engagement by the African National Congress President Cyril Ramaphosa with the party leadership uh, in the KZN province. Finally, we continue our focus on the upcoming 60th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union. We will feature a rare archival audio file from night of an interview uh, with the leader of the Tanzania Revolution and future president, Julius Nereri. Uh He appears in this interview uh, with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, the former first lady, along with Barbara Ward, a writer on poverty and development uh, in the 20th century. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. And, of course, we want you to stay tuned uh, and take in uh, all of the uh, information uh, that we're going to be presenting uh, in uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, for uh, this week. And, of course, uh, we have our musical interlude, and uh, we're going to, of course, uh, deal uh, with uh, the music uh, from Kenya. Uh, This is from the... Nikori Jazz Band from 
Wango nyango ya marawa 
Pero Mirero.
You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was music from uh, the East African state of Kenya uh, by the Maguro Jazz Band, uh, music uh, from the early uh, 1970s. And uh, we're going to move right now into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, this edition of the Pan-African Journal, and our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current security crisis uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, uh, which has killed uh, over 600 people uh, over the last four weeks and displaced tens of thousands of others. And, of course, uh, there were discussions held in the fort city of Jeddah on the Red Sea in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia over the last several days uh, between envoys of the Sudanese Armed Forces uh, headed by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and uh, his opponent, uh, General Hamete, uh, Mohammed Hamdan Degalo, uh, who is the commander of the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, they have been fighting each other now for over four weeks. Uh, this uh, war has claimed uh, many people, and of course the latest, one of the latest, uh, is a very prominent Sudanese singer, uh, Shadine uh, Gardot. She has been killed uh, in crossfire between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary support forces in Abdurman City, uh, which is right across the Nile from the capital of Sudan, uh, Khartoum. Now, fierce battles engulfed Abdurman and his twin city, Khartoum, on Friday when Gardad was killed. And Saturday, despite an agreement to protect civilians uh, before ceasefire talks due to resume in Saudi Arabia, uh, earlier today, Abdurman has seen heavy fighting since the war began on April 15th, as the two sides fought through several truces and have shown no sign of being willing to compromise. Gardot uh, lived in the El Hashmab neighborhood, which is near the National TV and Radio Building, a focal point uh, for the fighting. Abdurman is a city of considerable significance, even giving its name to a genre of music called the Abdurman Songs, which fuses Egyptian and European orchestral influences with Sudanese rhythms and melodies uh, and was first broadcast on Radio Abdurman. The BBC reported that Gardoud uh, promoted peace and security in her region and promoted the culture of her marginalized community. Gar from South uh, Kordofan Tributes uh, flooded in online after her niece confirmed her death on Facebook, stating Gardot uh, was like a mother and a beloved uh, to me, and we were just chanting, may God give her mercy. Several posts suggested that Gardot had been killed after a mortar hit her home. The singer had been active on Facebook in the days leading up to her death, using the platform to criticize the war while offering encouragement to other civilians trapped in the fighting. In a recent post, uh, she said, we have been trapped in our houses for 25 days. We are hungry and living in an enormous fear, but are full of ethics and values. Uh, BBC reported that Gardot uh, is survived by her 15-year-old son, Hamoudi, and her mother and sister. More than 600 civilians have been reported uh, killed uh, in the war so far, although figures are expected to go uh, much higher. And another news uh, from the Republic of Sudan, fighting between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces has lasted for four consecutive weeks, 
with devastating consequences for civilians and civilian infrastructure, especially in Khartoum and Darfur, a factory that produced vital supplies for the treatment of malnourished children in Sudan was burned down in Khartoum. The conflict is threatening the main planning season while prices of staple goods have risen dramatically, heightening the risk of food insecurity in the period ahead. Partners are delivering assistance, including food, therapeutic feeding, and safe learning spaces to people impacted by the fighting as well as those who were already in need. And uh, other news uh, taking place uh, on uh, the African continent in the West African state of Burkina Faso, an attack by suspected Islamic extremists on a village in the west of Burkina Faso killed 33 civilians. The provincial governor's office said official death toll from the Thursday evening attack on the village of Yulu in uh, Muhun province was announced uh, in a press release. Provincial Governor Baba Pierre Basenga uh, called the attack cowardly and barbaric. He said in the statement that the attack happened around 5 p.m. as residents were at work in their fields beside the Mahoon River. The governor said security actions were underway to counter the extremists. Basinga urged the population to increase their vigilance and to collaborate with the security forces. Listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the southern African state of Botswana, uh, they, the government has put restrictions on the exportation and importation of scheduled key grains, sorghum and maize in particular. And that's according to Joe Ramapoy, uh, permanent secretary of Botswana's Ministry of Entrepreneurship. He said this in a statement issued uh, on Friday. The exportation of the goods would stop with immediate effect, while the importation will cease at midnight on May the 15th. Ramaphore said that all harvested maize and sorghum by government-subsidized or supported farmers must be sold to the Botswana Agricultural Marketing Board for storage, resale, redistribution, and further processing in the value chain. Trading activities of government-supported commercial farms engaged in the production of scheduled grains for food security purposes as well as those operating in special economic zones should be regulated, Ramaphore said. Clement Sabanda a spokesperson for the Ministry of Entrepreneurship, said in a separate interview that local commercial farmers prefer to export grains to outside markets with better prices, which has contributed to sorghum and maize shortages in Botswana. And, of course, in our uh, last story uh, for uh, today, uh, the situation in Ghana uh, involving electoral politics where Next year, there will be presidential and parliamentary elections. The National Democratic Congress flag bearer hopeful, Kojo Bonsu, has ceded defeat to his contender, uh, former President John Dramani Mahama, in the ongoing uh, National Democratic Congress Party primaries. Voting has long ended, uh, but uh, counting of ballots and correlation in the presidential race is yet to end. Election officials expect to conclude the entire exercise by 10 p.m. In a Facebook post, the former mayor of Kumasi, Kojo Bonso, said he has called uh, John Mahama to congratulate him on his landslide victory in the presidential primaries. While the party is yet to officially announce polling results, John Mahama's side is predicting at least a 91% win uh, in the elections. 
Uh, Kojo Bonso was John Muhammad's only contender in the NDC presidential primary following former finance minister Dr. Kwamenaw Dufour's abrupt withdrawal from the race on Friday, citing electoral irregularities. Provincial results so far point a lopsided contest with former President John Muhammad sweeping virtually every consistency of the votes. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and since then has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Journal and uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go uh, to the Pan-African Newswire first. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you want to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, May uh, the 14th, uh, 2023. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. I can't take it I'm so lonely Gee, I need you so I can't take it Oh, I wonder Why you had to go
the music of uh, the legendary uh, Johnny Nash uh, with the track entitled Tears uh, on My Pillow. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Right now we want to move into a segment uh, where we're going to uh, listen to the South African President Cyril Ramaphosa respond to allegations made by the United States Ambassador to South Africa claiming uh, that South Africa is selling arms uh, to the Russian Federation. Uh, This has been a major diplomatic row over the last several days. Uh, Let's listen to uh, President Ramaphosa, his response uh, to these allegations. South Africa's relationship with the United States of America, the country's biggest trading partner, is on a knife's edge. Pretoria and the governing African National Congress have taken exception to American Ambassador Ruben Brakey's accusations that the government aided Russia with weapons when a Russian ship docked for army drills with SANDF in December last year. President Ramaphosa says South Africa is a sovereign state and that must be respected by the United States of America. We agree on the processes that we are going to embark upon to address these matters. Now, surprise, surprise, the American ambassador comes to South Africa back and he accuses us. He accuses us and launches an attack against us, which we found quite, you know, distasteful because at a diplomatic level, we don't do things like that. But in any event, the Minister of, our Minister of International Relations had a meeting with him yesterday, expressed South Africa's disappointment in him, and uh, he then apologized. He said, I apologize in the meeting uh, to Minister Pando. President Ramaphosa says he has also spoken to Russian President Vladimir Putin on recent geopolitical developments and the upcoming BRICS summit, to which Russia has already been sent an invite. The ICC has issued a warrant of arrest against the Russian president, with South Africa obliged to arrest Putin if he arrives for the summit, but the government is still engaging on the matter. Ramaphosa says South Africa's stature and status in the world is respected and nobody can undermine the nation. We don't, we don't feel undermined by the United States. We uh, are interacting with the United States. I mean, these things happen and we have to deal with them uh, politically and diplomatically. We are a sovereign state and we will never fall into uh, a state of helplessness where we feel we are being undermined and we are proud of our status, of our standing in the world. Uh, We are respected uh, in many quarters around the world and we play our part and so sometimes these things happen you take them in your stride and you deal with them politically and you move on. So South Africa can never really be undermined. We stand proud amongst the nations of the world because of what we are worth. We know what we are worth and we know that we are a respected and a respectful member of the Club of Nations. On ANC internal matters, the party president says they will not be disbanding KwaZulu-Natal's provincial executive committee. There is no decision, there is no reason, uh, there is no plan to disband the PEC. We've got uh, leadership 
that is leading this province. So those rumors are rumors that are just flying around in the sky. Uh, we are here as we are going to be doing to all other provinces. We're here to consolidate the unity that has been forged here, strengthen the ANC, and also look at uh, how national can assist and strengthen the ANC in the province. And uh, we, from here we're going to other provinces as well. So there's no plan whatsoever to disband any of our structures. We're going around the country to strengthen them. So get it from me, it's to strengthen and not to disband. The ANC's National Working Committee will be engaging all 11 regions of the party on the state of the organization and service delivery challenges. The provincial leadership will also get an opportunity to engage with the National Working Committee. From Elam Sego, SEDC News, Durban. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation on uh, the recent diplomatic tensions between the United States and the Republic of South Africa, uh, the latest, of course, involving allegations by the United States ambassador to South Africa, saying that South Africa is selling arms to the Russian Federation to utilize in their special military operation in Ukraine. And as uh, the president said, uh, South Africa is a sovereign country. And uh, as president of South Africa, with the African National Congress as the ruling party, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa is president of the ANC. And uh, earlier today, he was in the KwaZulu-Natal province, and uh, he was engaging uh, with the provincial executive uh, leadership of the ANC in that province. We want to uh, go uh, to uh, some excerpts uh, from uh, that engagement that took place in KZN uh, earlier today has improved our people's lives. Our people's lives were quite bad, and apartheid has divided our people. They've divided us into tribes, they've divided us into national groups, and the African National Congress unites our people. We sit here united in our diversity. We're all different, but the ANC is the only organization that has demonstrated that it can unite. The ANC unites and apartheid divided us. The ANC has bonded us into one nation. Today, even here in Chatsworth, we've got Africans, we've got Indians, we've got Colors, but white people, all of us united around and behind the banner of the African National Congress. That is the beauty of the ANC and we need to applaud that organization for that program. And it is this organization that over a 30 year period has changed the political landscape of our country. It has changed the economic landscape of our country, has changed the social landscape of our country, and has worked to improve the lives of our people. Before 1994, 
Many of our people were not employed. Since 1994, the ASC has created closer to 8 million new jobs. Today we've got some 16 million people who are employed. Over the years, yes, we've gone through a number of challenges and difficulties where as the economy has been in a slump, jobs have been lost, but on an overall basis, if you look over the years, there have been a number of jobs that have been created. We face now a challenge of huge unemployment, but it is a challenge that we believe that the ANC will be able to address. Just in the past year and a half, we've been able to regain some of the jobs that we lost during COVID. We lost two million jobs during COVID, and one and a half million jobs of those have been regained. We continue to create more and more jobs. And in caring for the people of our country, it is the ANC that puts the interests of our people ahead of anything else. Today, we've got 18 million people, 18 million people who are being looked after by our government. The social grants that we put in place we didn't have such a dispensation before the ANC. Today, the ANC government looks after 18 million people every month. And if you take the 10 million people that now receive the social relief grant that we introduced during COVID, you add another 10 million people so it means 28 million people are looked after by the ANC-led government. There is no other government on the African continent that cares and looks after people in the way that it does. It's only the ANC-led government that we That shows the care. Before 1994, our children, mothers, the children that you give birth to and send to school, were never really fed at school. You know very well, you would have to wake up every morning, make a peanut butter sandwich <laughs> to give your child. Today, those children go to school, and nine million of them every day are fed by the ANC-led government. Phenomenal success. And I can count many, many other things. Housing is one other major success that yet we can count on. But we don't only count on it for what we did in the past. We continue to do so. Our housing Human Settlement Program continues. We have built between three to four million and four million houses over the years. We continue to do so. Where people who deserve housing are given houses free. Free house worth 160,000 rand. Where the government calls you mama, 
Father, you deserve a house. Here is a house free. And that program was started by the Father of our nation, Nelson Mandela. It continues today. We continue to house the nation and with the means that we can, we continue to roll out housing for free. You go anywhere on the continent, you will not find many countries that do that for its citizens. Only the ANC-led government is able to do so. And that deserves approval. Our young people who go to school, there are many low-fee schools now where parents no longer need to pay fees and the children have now gone into schools. We're now focusing on early childhood development. We're bringing all those early childhood development children into formal education. Now we're faced with big challenges, crime. And we are now focusing on fighting crime. And I've said to the Minister of Police, we need to focus on crime prevention. So that in the areas where you live, police should be able to be there, present, visible, so that we can prevent acts of criminality. And we are going to root out crime wherever you are living. Because we want young women, the women of our country and everybody, to feel safe and to be safe. I know that in this area there's a lot of criminality. And yes, we are going to go after the gangsters, we are going to go after the crooks, we are going to go after the syndicates, and we are also going to go after those who peddle drugs in our community. We are going to go after them. And in that regard, we say we know usually who they are. You as community members, you know who they are. And we say let us work together with our police officers so that we root them out. Our enemy is drugs. Our enemy criminality and our enemies are those who, who steal and together we can root all those terrible elements out. The provincial chair of Responsible Tuba was telling me that we held a big match here in Etebuini where 10,000 people participated and it was a march against social ills. We want to root out those social ills and root them out of our system and create a better community life for our people. We also are going to focus on development. There are areas in our living areas which have not been well developed, some have been neglected. And I've been saying to cabinet ministers, I want us now to come up with clear priorities of development, of delivering services to our people. I was having a meeting with our councillors here in Etewini yesterday, and I was saying we need to be providing services to our people. We need to make sure that there's water. We need to make sure that there's refuse collection. We need 
address all those. They made a commitment that, yes, President, we will focus on that. The challenge of electricity is nationwide. It's nationwide and it's affecting all of our lives. From Rice, Messina, right through to Cape Agala. Right from the eastern seashore of our country to the western seashore. Everyone is being badly affected by the challenge of electricity. I want you to know that our problems with electricity did not start yesterday. They did not start last week or last year. They started way back before the year 2000. And we started experiencing load shedding from 2007. And this is of mistakes that were made, errors that were made along the way, not maintaining our power stations. Like you would know if you have a car. If you don't maintain your car one day, it will surely break down. That's exactly where we are now. But we've realized what the problem is. And we are addressing the problem. We are addressing it in a pointed way. And that is why I appointed a Minister of Electricity. Because I wanted somebody who will wake up in the morning and address electricity. During the day, must address electricity. At night, when he sleeps, when he dreams, when he eats, when he snores, when he does everything, it must just be in electricity. Even when he goes to the toilet, I want him to be thinking about electricity. That's all I want him to be doing. So, Minister Ramakopa is, is addressing our existential problem right now. And so you know, we are not the only country in the world that is struggling with electricity. Many other countries around the world have got one or some energy uh, generation challenge. I remember years ago, California was always in the dark. You would have thought that you know, a more economically developed country like America would not have no shedding and all that. And they had blackout, complete blackout. But they, want, they, they found their way through that. Now I want to assure you that we are going to find our way through that. Winter is going to be a challenge. It's going to be an enormous challenge because that's when we use electricity in a big way. And we've come up with a number of solutions. And some of them are to installation of rooftop solar uh, panels so that we can get free electricity from the sun and to power our houses. That is going to be rolled out and you will get to know exactly how everyone can participate in this. And government stands behind, will stand behind our people. What I wanted you to know is that we are addressing this challenge. It is a challenge that all of us have and we are addressing it. And I am sure, absolutely certain, that having appointed an engineer, a person with deep knowledge about electricity, we will be able to solve the problem. There is no problem without a solution, and Ramakopa 
is going to solve this problem for us working together with Minister Mantashe, working together with Pravin Gorda, working together with all of us, we will be able to solve this problem. So today is a great day for us. What you are signifying by your presence here and also by those of you who have joined the ANC, you are signifying your hope in the African National Congress. Some people think that all its hope is lost with the ANC. And we say we've been around for 111 years. And hope is not lost in the ANC. The majority of people in this country still have hope in the African National Congress. Millions and millions of them. And you are joining the ranks of those who have hope and trust and belief in the African National Congress. We are a movement that is renewing itself. We are dealing with our challenges. All organizations around the world, be they churches, be they you know, religious organizations, sporting organizations, whatever, they go through patches when they have some difficulty. In our case, we've been quite upfront in admitting some of our shortcomings. But you know what? A problem that is admitted is a problem solved. And that is exactly where we are. We've admitted we've got challenges, and now we are solving those challenges. And I saw it for myself yesterday. I was meeting with the entire leadership of the Etiquini region of the ANC. It was like 700 leaders from various branches. They were demonstrating unity. They were demonstrating determination to address the challenges the ANC is facing and to turn around, to turn around our municipality, our metro, to address the challenges we have, to get government, yes, to repair the damage that was done by the flood, yes, to make sure that we have water, yes, to make sure that there's good refuse removal, yes, to make sure that we fight corruption, that those who have been tempted to get into corrupt activities should be dealt with so that we free the ANC of any act of corruption. Today, Comrade Ronnie Pillay has joined our ranks because where he was, there was corruption and it was not being dealt with. And he has felt that he wants to come to the organization that he sees is serious about fighting corruption. And yes, the African National Congress is serious about fighting corruption. And we will succeed. And it is in this regard that I honor him. I honor Comrade Ronnie and I honor, honor you as well who are working with him. Your presence here and Comrade Ronnie's decision to join the African National Congress is significant because it shows his confidence and your confidence in Nelson Mandela's organization. 
and we therefore thank you for that. Now the next task that we all have to do is to make sure that Ronnie Pile wins this war. Make sure that we succeed. And by the looks of it, I can already see that this ward has now shifted, it's now come home to the African National Congress. Because that is where it belongs. So today, those of you who have signed up to be members by swearing and taking the oath, this is the highlight of any ANC member's life. To stand and take the oath in public and say, yes, I am joining this organization freely, completely by my own decision, and I'll subject myself to the discipline, to the values of the ANC as expressed also in the Freedom Charter. So we honor you for that. You've taken a big step. This is a mighty step in your life as a human being to come and join the African National Congress. And as I said, you look so beautiful, so handsome in the colors that I see. The other color you were wearing, you are quite horrible. But now, oh, you are looking so lovely. And we thank you for that. And we stand firm. There will be ups and downs. As every organization and any family, even our own families, we go through our ups and downs, but you never turn back from your family. You never turn back also, you never turn back against this organization that you know stands for improving the lives of our people. So let us all go out in this community and we will bring more of our leaders campaign for Ronnie so that Ronnie emerges victorious and this ward goes back home to the African National Congress. So I thank you for being here and I love you dearly and yes, I will be taking a picture with you as a group who have just joined the ANC. Once again, Amanda! Amanda! Thank you so much. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, recorded earlier today uh, in uh, KwaZulu-Natal. 
Um, it was a presentation and engagement uh, by President Good afternoon, Good afternoon. and thank you for all of you people, the senior citizens, my activists, especially at work, for almost 16 years with me, are back with me. I just want to say thank you for joining the ANC and your trust in me. And I think now that we have the president who will give me more confidence, and I think I can rely on him and the officers, members of the PEC, members of the ANC, and I'm sure they will be right behind me all the way. So I just want to say thank you for all of your being here, irrespective whichever you're, whichever way you're with, whichever you're in, you are here today for me. Thank you and for the ANC. Thank you very much. That was uh, a meeting, a uh, provincial executive committee meeting of the African National Congress in uh, And that meeting was addressed uh, by uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of the African National Congress and president of the Republic of South Africa. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday. (laughs) Yes, and uh, that was earlier today, uh, Sunday, May 14th, uh, 2023, uh, recorded uh, in... uh, Yes, they keep coming back uh, at the ANC Provincial Executive Committee meeting. 
that was addressed uh, by President Cyril Ramaphosa, President of the ANC, the ruling party of the Republic of South Africa, and also President of the Republic of South Africa State. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, May 14th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week. Don't you abuse it I gave you tender love and care Oh baby Now don't you misuse it Girl, and if you got somebody else If you got somebody else on your mind I want you to please 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 baby ah, let me down Supposed to do 
1959 uh, was a very pivotal year in regard to the struggle for African independence. Um, of course, uh, mass demonstrations and rebellions erupted in uh, the Belgian Congo, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And also there were stirrings uh, in uh, the British, then the British colony of Tanganyika, and of course the Tanzania African National Union uh, became a dominant political party in the struggle for national independence. That party uh, was headed uh, by Julius Nereri Malibu, uh, in Swahili means the teacher. And uh, we're going to present a rare archival audio file uh, featuring uh, Julius Nereri in 1959 uh, in a discussion uh, with uh, U.S. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, along with Barbara Ward, uh, who uh, was a Canadian uh, writer and analyst on development issues impacting the international community in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Let's listen uh, to uh, this rare uh, archival interview featuring uh, Julius Nereri uh, from 1959. Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt today discusses Africa, Revolution in Haste, with Ralph Bunn Ward on Prospects of Mankind. Recorded Sunday, March 6, 1960, in cooperation with Brandeis University, National Edgenal Television presents the WGBH-TV production, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, Prospects of Mankind. The cry in Africa today is Uhuru, freedom. And freedom is coming fast. The past five years saw the spectacular birth of five new nations. Among them, Nkrumah's Ghana. Last year's map is already out of date because the momentum is increasing so rapidly. 1960 sees the long-awaited birth of Nigeria, of Somalia, and to everyone's surprise, the Belgian Congo. Kenya and Tanganyika are following fast behind with an orderly transfer of power from all-white rule to a multiracial system. How smooth this transition will be depends on Africa's leaders. Julius Nyerere has already changed the motto of his revolution from freedom to freedom and toil, and toil there is going to be, to break away from the centuries-old patterns of thinking, to achieve the backing and trust of the tribal elders, to overcome their suspicion and hostility, to train a new generation of craftsmen, artisans, people able to take the first steps toward building a modern economy, technicians who can handle a slide rule, scientists who can develop or apply better agricultural methods and raise the subsistence standards, medical workers who can attack the special diseases of this continent. Educational facilities must be expanded quickly in these formative years of independence. To throw off the old humilities of racial superiority, the Africans are seeking modern forms of government. They may not follow exactly the European parliamentary traditions which have risen out of the alien culture, But where the hand of friendship and understanding is extended, Europe and the United States can help to avert some of the more dangerous pitfalls. 
In some places, the road to the 20th century will be able to transform itself from the old to the new. Today, Mrs. Roosevelt and her guests explore the problems faced by the new nations of Africa as they gain their independence with unprecedented speed. Her guests are Ralph Bunch, Nobel Peace Prize winner and United Nations Undersecretary for Special Political Affairs, Barbara Ward, Lady Jackson, a resident of Ghana and a distinguished economist and writer, currently a lecturer at Harvard University. Saville Davis, managing editor of the Christian Science Monitor. Julius Nyereri, president of the Tanganyika African National Union. In all probability, the first prime minister of Tanganyika. Now, here is Mrs. Roosevelt. Although we in America can understand the Africans' resentment against outside domination, we cannot help but worry whether the newly independent nations, who have virtually no preparation for independence, can make a go of it. Given the demand of quick and efficient development, what will happen to traditional safeguards for political and social democracy, for example? On the first program of this series, I mentioned that nationalism seemed to be moving too rapidly in Africa. At that time, of course, independence for the Belgian Congo was in the distant future. Today we know that the Congo will become free on June 30th of this year after a headlong rush toward independence. The people of Tanganyika seem to be approaching independence at a much more deliberate rate. Mr. Nayere, I wonder if to begin this program, you would give us just a quick sketch of your country and the character of its people. Well, perhaps the quickest sketch I can give of my country is to say, this I've learned from this country, it is roughly the size of Texas. It has um, nine million people. Of these nine million people, we have the indigenous tribes, the 120 of them. Then we have the newer tribes, some from Europe, some from Asia, Arabs, and uh, the Indians, and the Pakistanis, Greeks, Englishmen, Germans, Italians, and all this. And it's these people whom we are trying to weld in a nation, and it's among these people that I have organized the Tanganyika African National Union, of which I am, I am president in trying to get um, independence for the country. Well, now that is, is a very good sketch, and I'd like to ask the three of our guests today whether you feel that independence is coming too fast in Africa. May, may I just say a word yes, on that uh, question, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I understand uh, very well that this is a, a valid question and one which many people are asking. But um, I really wonder whether uh, we could uh, do very much worthwhile in discussing it. Because I, uh, I really think there's not much that can be done about it. Moreover, I think that it would be uh, extremely difficult to generalize with regard to Africa on the subject. I know of no absolute criteria for determining when a people are ready for independence. Perhaps we didn't ask it ourselves we didn't, uh, in the early we, days of our history. We didn't ask that <laughs> question ourselves, and I think probably a good case could be made for saying that we weren't ready yes. when we uh, got it. But uh, the people of Africa are moving toward independence. When people are seeking freedom, they're always impatient, and I think that's good that they're impatient. Mm -hmm. I, and I wonder if uh, 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 Barbara Ward would... Uh, 
Oh, no, I, I, I entirely agree. I think that when nations are, are set for independence and want it, uh, then everything must be done to help them and encourage them and see that they get it. Because after all, if we don't believe in the right of peoples to govern themselves, I don't know what we do believe in. But I think that there are one or two, one or two particular problems that face Africa, and that is the gap between the, um, the political form of a modern state and the extraordinary degree of technical and economic uh, sophistication which goes into the making of a state. And I think when people talk about independence coming too quickly, they don't mean in any absolute sense that people aren't ready to govern themselves. They do ask, uh, have they got uh, some of these essential, uh, uh, essential skills and equipment to do it well when they've got it? Why did it come so quickly, though? Shouldn't, shouldn't we look into that question for a moment? Because uh, the, the timetable has been condensed, almost catapulted, we have this remarkable agreement on, on independence for the Congo in June. It's just come out of Belgium. We have this conference that's just taken place in, in London on Kenya. And uh, when uh, Tom Aboya, the Kenya leader, got back home, he said that this wasn't going to last for very long, that he expected that uh, uh, there would be an African majority very, very soon in Kenya. Why, why has it happened so quickly? Well, in the first place, I think the, the, the actual answer is to ask the question really does not arise. If, if, you, if you come into my house and steal my jacket, don't then ask me whether I'm ready for my jacket. The jacket was mine. You had no right at all to take it from me. Yes, but it takes and, long. And it, well, it, it may take a long time to go to the high courts and appeal and, and get all this done until I get my jacket back. But you have no right at all to ask me whether I, I was ready for my jacket. True. Uh, the, the mechanism of whether really I, I, I can look right in my, my jacket when I put it on, this is different. I, I mean, it may not uh, be as, uh, I mean, I may not look as smart in it as you look in it, but it's mine. This is your side of it, and, and it's very significant as your side of it. Isn't it also significant, though, that the colonial powers appear to have crossed the big divide uh, for themselves and come to the conclusion that they have to expect African majorities in the countries of Africa now? Isn't that the big decision which they've made? But, uh, Savile, uh, you said uh, the timetable has been changed. Who set the time? The table? expectations of people who probably didn't ah, understand what was happening. That's in quite right. Exactly. Yes. So there was no time Touché. table. There was, there was no time, no time table. table. Yes. Uh, there were, as you say, expectations on the part of people who had their own ideas as to what the pace of progress should be. But on this subject, let me point this out. Um, the question was, are they going too fast or are they ready? I think it's most fortunate that uh, these states of Africa are merging into independence at a period in the world's history unlike any other period when uh, there is more sense of interdependence among states, more sense of solidarity in an international community, when for the first time there is a sense of responsibility on the part of a world community to aid those who are emerging. And so uh, it seems to me the question is more valid if we say, uh, what can the international community do to help these people after they gain independence, whether they were really ready for it or not in terms of... Well, I must say I agree with that very much, and I think it does tie up with what you were asking before, and that is why has <coughs> the timetable come... why is it speeded up? I think it's speeded up owing to a, a very big historical change in mankind, which may be the most important one that's happened since... well, I, I wouldn't know how long, perhaps the invention of the wheel. And that is the idea that small nations, small groups, have the right not to be run by big groups. Now, this is revolutionary. 
it isn't yet entirely world accepted in a worldwide sense because you have the Russians still insisting on running Hungary, you have the Chinese still insisting on running Tibet, you have a very ambiguous situation in Algeria, and above all for Africa, you have the Union, which is which is and the, the colonial big colonial powers, not only the Union, the colonial powers. I say French, the, 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 the French, the, the others are going, don't you think? Well, the others are being made to go. It's not as if really they have, they have decided gracefully to go out. They are being made to go out. Well, well, it's a mixture. It's a mixture because... It, it's a mixture imposed upon them by the time. But if mm. really time hadn't been... If this had not been the 20th century, these people would have insisted on... on, on remaining well, staying that, that, that is what I mean there, Mr. Neri. That is, there is this change in thinking that there are a number of people in Europe who feel that they should go at a time when the people in Africa feel they should... Too. I wonder, I wonder whether really... A, you're, we're not overlooking one of the most central things, namely, that if we had not had the United Nations, this might have been delayed a long while. The thing that makes it secure for small nations today is the fact that the United Nations exist. Well, I'm not sure. I think it helps. But I must confess, I do think that the British decision to get out of India was, was not a United Nations decision and oh, was no, within, within the historical past. This isn't what I mean. I don't Ooh. mean that the United Nations makes the decision, but I mean that there's a feeling of confidence that the small nations have lies largely in the fact that since there is a United Nations and that it does have an effect on world opinion, it's a forum, yeah. it's, it's a forum where they can be sure of being heard. It's more than, it's more than that even for them, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt. It, it ties up with the question that several put a minute ago. Uh, why have the people increased the pace? Why have uh, they decided to go so fast? Well, the background for that, of course, was in part the fact that uh, at the end of World War II, the UN the spotlight of international opinion on the colonialism as, ne as it never had been turned before. Uh, the background for that uh, was the Atlantic Pact and the Four Freedoms, uh, the fact that colonial people themselves were participating in a war for freedom, and uh, this, they came home and wanted it. And so they wanted increased, uh, increased pace. Moreover, uh, in addition to what Mrs. Roosevelt uh, has said, uh, the international community organized in the United Nations today is a sort of international club. Uh, these new states emerging into independence are not lonely anymore. They uh, can come into this organization. They're not dependent uh, uh, upon their former masters. They sit as equals uh, with uh, all the other states. Uh, they feel a part of an international community. They can get help from it, uh, which is their right to do. And so this gives them uh, an encouragement which they otherwise could not have. Yeah, that's all right as long as you get away from the right colonial power. But it's, no, it's absolutely no, uh, uh, no consolation to East, Eastern Europe or last of the Tibetans. I mean, I think it's right that you should stress the United Nations, and heaven knows I, I would stress it. Yes. But I think also you've got to have a certain degree of... Uh, the beginnings of a liberal philosophy in the metropolitan yes. power as well, because if you don't, well... Well, why don't we turn this question around, and instead of talking about the speed-up of the timetable and whether it's too fast, let's talk about the problems that are, that are, are being raised by the sudden uh, coming, oncoming of independence. And uh, certainly, uh, Mr. Nyerere has, uh, has his hands full of these, and we keep on hearing people say that he's handling them almost better than anybody else, if not better than anybody else. 
So we might ask him a little bit, how, how would a multiracial society, for example, operate in Tanganyika uh, when you have uh, fully taken over power, Mr. Nyerere? Well, first, we don't like to refer to our society as a multiracial society because this was a political term which was created, I think, by, largely by the colonial powers to show that we were in a special category either in <laughs> Africa or in the world. And in actual fact, it's not true. The, the whole, where, where, is, where is a part of the world which is, which is not multiracial? I mean, the whole world, the is whole world is. groups of people living together. This was a political term created in, in our part of Africa, in East, Central, and South Africa. And this was the problem where democracy could not work because this, this was a big problem there. For, for that reason, we don't like to, to, to refer to the, to the term multiracial. It's home. very hard to avoid using these sensitive phrases. What should we refer to? Well, I mean, I, why? I mean, why, why? I've, never, I've never heard the word being used, uh, applied to England or applied to, to, to Germany or even this yeah. country, which is clearly multiracial. It's, it's, not it's, quite it's, so, it's not quite as easy to apply it to England, but to this country, it, it has to be applied. It, it should be applied, but it's we not. We have our Scots and Well, only so now. <laughs> <laughs> should we say a democratic society? Exactly, exactly. At if, home... If I could interrupt just a moment, I think it ought to be made clear why this point is so important to Mr. Nyeri, because he's the one African leader in the whole continent. Uh, who is leading all groups in his society, with, uh, not uh, only Africans, but with Asians and Europeans uh, in the party. And they're working together? Yeah, working, working together so, so under his leadership. Say, let me say that at home, the Europeans, the Asians, the Africans, and that's why in my first answer I referred to them as the indigenous tribes and the new tribes in Tanganyika. These are all Tanganyikans. Mm -hmm who are binding themselves together to achieve their independence and build a Tanganyika nation. They are, whether they came from Asia or they came from Greece or they came from England, these are Tanganyika nationalists. Their rights are not rights of Europeans or rights of Africans or rights of uh, Asians or rights of Arabs. These are rights of individual citizens of Tanganyika. And, and I don't see why in Tanganyika we cannot base our, our rights of citizenship, our duties of citizenship on loyalty to the country instead of the color of a person's skin or the texture of a person's, a person's hair. We, we, see, we see ourselves that this is not a problem which has started in Tanganyika, it has always been there and if people want to, to build a democratic society they can build it. Well, just to raise some of the, of the really difficult problems, at least that there are in other countries, are you up against the kind of, of uh, problem, for example, such as Kenya has in the land in the highlands. Do you have a land reform uh, problem or program that you've got to work out? Have the whites had any special positions which will need to be merged into the, the, the new democracy? No. Fortunately, we don't have um, We never in Tanganyika reserved the whole province and called this uh, the Kenya Highlands or the Tanganyika Highlands. We so, have no Tanganyika so Highlands. One should, bearing out Dr. Bunch's point, say that one reason why is that in 1919 Tanganyika came under an old League of Nations mandate and therefore <laughs> this kind of, of transfer couldn't occur. Isn't that one of the reasons? Uh, well, I must not leave it there. <laughs> it would be very unfair to the British if I just mm. left it there. 
it depends also upon the administering power. Because after all, Southwest Africa was amended too. True, true. Uh, yeah. I, I think you, you, you've mm. got to put the, st the mandate status or the trust status must not be taken separately from the mandatory right, right, power right, right, yeah. or, yes. or the mm. administering right, authority. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Tanganyika, we didn't have um, a, a Tanganyika Highlands. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, to us, it's not as if the Europeans had a group, a province, which yeah. was their province. They have individual rights to land. And we say we are quite prepared to, to, to as see as long as the citizens of the country. That's so all. now against this background, would you have any suggestions as, as to either how your experience might help uh, Kenya and uh, Tom Maboya and his colleagues next door uh, uh, to your country? Or uh, have you any idea of how they might work out that very difficult land reform problem? Are they going to be able to work it out peaceably? Well, I have said before, and I, I think I can repeat it because I, to me it's, it's quite obvious, that I have no lesson to teach to Tom Mboya and the other Kenya African leaders. The lesson from Tanganyika is a lesson by the Europeans and the Asians, and it's the Europeans in Kenya who must learn from the Europeans in Tanganyika, who must look upon themselves as Kenya. individual citizens of Kenya, mm -hmm. and must seek for individual rights and not for European rights. Not for racial or rights. For, for not for racial rights. Are you at all hopeful that that will happen I, in Kenya I, I, after I, the I London Conference? certain that is going to happen. I, would, I must say that I would, I would agree. If you think of the change in the Kenyan outlook in the last ten years, the emergence of men like Mr. Blundell, who are feeling their way to precisely this concept, not of group rights but of individual rights. Uh, I would I'd go all the way with Mr. Nigeri on that. I think it's going to come. Though I think there might well be a small hard core who won't accept the new order. Will they but leave? They should leave. Hmm. Because after all, if you don't accept the condition in which you're, you're, of the country in which you're going to live, yes. then uh, this has happened to others after all. Well, the press you reports know. are accurate. Uh, some of them uh, are leaving or preparing to leave already because yes, I've read yes, reports yes. of, of uh, fine villas for sale and so just one little point on that. I do think nonetheless that as it's awfully hard to make a small group of people pay for a history which they don't understand, that I think it would be reasonable for the British government at some point to give some compensation to take them away. Because this is, this, this is some sort of, if, if they go leaving behind fully developed estates, then uh, give them some transfer pay. Because, you know, they haven't caught up. But it's awfully hard to penalize them. But that isn't but a that, matter for Africa, that's, that's, that's a matter for the British government. What is penalizing? I mean, quite, quite frankly, this is absurd. These fellows are offered the rights of citizenship in Kenya. If they quit, they quit. Who, who, who compensates them? Well, they let them sell out. No, nobody's punishing them. People are offering them stay in Kenya as a Kenya citizen with equal rights with everybody. With you bill, quit. With, if you quit, what compensation do you want? With a bill well, of rights to protect them. With a bill of rights to protect them. <laughs> yes, I think you're allowing for a degree of reason in older, in older people, which isn't always there. And I think it's awfully hard to expect uh, older groups, especially small ones, to understand this. I mean, I agree with you, but I just wonder whether you can't ease some transitions. Well, this, well, this would be the British. I mean, I yes. can't see the Kenyan national... Oh, no, 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 I don't mean that. Oh, I was thinking no, about no, the British no. government. Oh, no. No, no. Oh, no, 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 I didn't suggest for a moment no, it should be the Kenyan government. No, no, I think I understand what you mean because I can see that they came there uh, probably feeling they were hoping to develop something for the British government. They have developed something 
for the British government, no, no, but I, certainly not no, along no, the lines no, the of... should do it. No, not that. No, 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 I have got it. I wonder if I could uh, revert with a, for a moment with a question to um, your in introductory statement. Uh, as I recall, you made reference uh, to uh, democratic institutions um, what might be needed to to enable these new states to, to carry them. And I'd like to um, put this question to Mr. Nieri. It, it seems to me that um, uh, we in this country may be in for some disillusionment if we uh, assume that these new sta newly independent states on the African continent are going to model their political and economic systems pretty much uh, after our own. That is along the lines of what we call Western democracy, yes. Western parliamentary institutions. That's what happened to us in many countries, yes, not only that's in right. Africa. And I'm, a, I'm afraid that uh, may not be the course uh, no. in Africa for many reasons, because they will not find, uh, find them suitable to their needs yes. for other reasons. But I'd like to, to hear Mr. Yes, Nehru's views on that subject. Well, I, I, I must say, I, I, I've, since I've been here, during the last five weeks, I've been asked this question. Are we going to, be a, to form democracies in Africa? Or are we going to be dictatorships and all this? And actually, the question has come round on whether we are going to have a multi-party system in Africa, whether we are going to have a mono-party a, a mono system, whether, whether the governments of the, our countries are going to be one-party governments or not. Now, I, I must say, I, I, I believe I'm a Democrat myself. On the other hand, I cannot see how in a country like Tanganyika you could have a two-party system, certainly for the first years. We are an opposition, after all. We are an opposition to the colonial government which is already there. We build the whole people together. To us, this is not a party issue. This is a national issue to us. And we have all the people united together, not in actual fact in a political party, but in a nationalist movement. And it is this nationalist movement with uh, all the people, intending communists, intending capitalists, intending uh, socialists, all, all sorts. They're all there until they've achieved their freedom. Then it is this nationalist movement which forms the very first government. Now, an opposition can only arise when the issues are there. May, may I just interrupt at that point uh, for this explanation? In this country, Mr. Neary, there is a tendency on the part of some people to attribute to nationalism uh, only bad connotation. It's almost a bad word, uh, suddenly. Uh, and that, uh, it's nationalism that's running wild uh, in Africa, you see. Uh, I would submit that there, there are good and bad manifestations of nationalism, even today. And anyhow, uh, I think what the people of Africa are after is freedom. Well, that, that's true, and, and I think to, to an American audience it should not really be very difficult, because after all, what happened when the Americans wanted their freedom? They united themselves all together. They formed a one-party government, natural fact, until the issues were then defined for, for the parties to group themselves separately. Not, not on the issue of the Declaration of Independence. How could you have an opposition to the Declaration of Independence? No, you didn't, you, you you didn't have. Could you tell us then, how would freedom and the democratic system and the ballot box and so forth operate through the kind of, of one-party uh, system that you're describing? In, in September, in my own country, we are going to have an election. This is going to be a true and free election. And we are certain of winning all the 71 seats. 
we are, we are certain of that because there is the opposition, which is the, the present government, and, and we are going to fight all the seats and we win all the seats. This is a true election. Does this mean there is no democracy in the country? No, it's not true. Because within the nationalist movement itself, you have groups with different, different views. And when you come to actual policy, especially after you have formed the government, when you come to how you are going to tax the people, how you are going to spend money on education, how you are going to spend money on health, and how you are going to spend money on... on, on uh, the issues will come the up. Issues the issues will define themselves, yes. and you have the democratic sections. But well, you say you have one party and there is an opposition. There, you do not rule out by law the, the, the possibility of an opposition party. No, do I don't. In actual fact, I hope an opposition is going to come. But an opposition must have a respectable issue. Yeah. And a respectable issue can only come after independence. It ought, to be, it ought to be real and not synthetic. It's got to be real. You don't can't you think there's it. an analogy here between the way in which the party system developed in, 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 in the West? I mean, we, we seem to think that we got a a party system in the early stages no, of free no, government. This is, is not, not the case. No. The party system is a late development. Mm -hmm. And I think that what is perfectly compatible with, say, the first 25 years of independence is this movement of national union to tackle the appalling problems which lie in, in, in creating the state. On the other hand, there is another aspect of democracy which perhaps uh, we don't think of quite so much, but is also important, and that is while having this tremendous national effort to build the nation up, then it's also important to safeguard just those individual rights yes. about which you are speaking. In other words, the Bill of Rights is a bill fully of rights as important to democracy as this party thing. And I yes. think we over-insist on the party and under-insist in the sense on, on our the thinking. freedoms on of the individual. Yes. And to yes. me, yes. Yes. it was a very exciting thing that uh, the, the uh, Kenya group in London, <coughs> the, African, uh, the Africans in London at the Kenya conference, brought uh, Thurgood Marshall from the United States, an American Negro, to advise them on what amounted to setting up a system of human rights which would operate for the benefit of the whites in Kenya, ultimately. Well, no one uh, could be better qualified to work on a Bill of Rights than Thurgood Marshall. And in this case, this was what might, we might white call minority. a little poetic justice. It was yes. a little poetic justice, a lot of poetic justice. I add another point on this question of the Bill of Rights, because even this, I don't think, is entirely simple because our concept of the Bill of Rights is built up upon uh, very internally peaceful societies. But I do notice one thing, and this is inevitable, with the human nature being what it is, that the moment there is a real national crisis, we do to some extent bridge our own Bill of Rights. And I think a lot of the criticism, for example, directed now at Ghana, about aspects of the abridgment of the Bill of Rights, which are regrettable, overlook the extent to which there are tribal elements in these societies which try to pull them apart again. In other words, nation building is not always easy in a highly tribal state. And therefore, this too must be taken into account. I don't think you have this problem in Tanzania. We, we don't have it. But there is another one. I think, I think this question of democracy and all this. First, you are right in saying democracy must emphasize uh, the rights of the individual and the way a government is chosen. I, I keep on saying myself, if a government is cannot be removed without assassination, there is no democracy there. Yeah. It's really the individual rights and, and the, the right way of, a government... The right of judging the, the government of, of, through of, elections, of government. yes. Now, yeah. in, in Africa we have the problem you are mentioning that of, of building a nation from this country which is artificial by, by nature. You have these tribes together mm -hmm. and you, you try to make them into a nation. This is a problem. The other one, which the older nations never faced when they became independent, 
is this push to develop the countries. We've got to, 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 to develop our countries. We've got to give well, the people the water, century. education, and all this. This is and, and suddenly, and suddenly, and suddenly, a weak government in our countries cannot do this. No, and you haven't got the capital, mm -hmm. uh, which perhaps you had uh, when you were uh, under a big power. You might count on a we certain don't amount going in. Time. The yeah. outside world is all the time saying, Julius, what are you doing in Tanganyika? Yeah. They, they want me to work miracles in the country, and then yeah. they want me to have a very weak government which can't do anything in the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How right you are. Well, this yeah. brings us logically to the point of turning around now to the question of economic development and some of the very real difficulties that the that, that not only you but, but all of, of uh, independent Africa is, is facing. Where, where is the money coming from? If the funds which have normally come from colonial countries are uh, partly cut off or largely cut off, where, where is the investment coming well, from? Let, let first, this, this, I must, this question of funds which have come from the colonial powers, let me say, I don't know what other countries have received from the colonial powers. We in Tanganyika have not received very much. Uh, in, we have the Rusiji scheme. Um, Dr. Banchwe will know about the Rusiji scheme, where we need about uh, eight, 80 million pounds. I, the other day I was working in my, in my mind. The British, including the Germans, during the 75 years that we have been under colonial rule, if we put all the money together, which we have received both from Germany and Britain, it does not add up to one-fifth of what I need for the refugee scheme. Mm -hmm. So that this emphasis of our money we have been getting from the colonial powers is not really very much. We've been a poor people all the time. And it won't change our poverty very much by no, becoming independent. It's true of Tanganyika, but there was a big change uh, after the war from about 1944 onwards. And one of the problems for French West Africa, for example, is that the French government has been putting in something like $250 million worth of infrastructure, you know, for ports and harbors. They've had their interest in doing it, but it's been, you know, it's been cash. It's been cash. And what is the great question is, can one find ways of ensuring this flow of capital, which heaven knows is needed for maximum speed and development, without it merely being another form of colonial control. Well, now I the think the answer, the answer can be provided in this, that I think one of the problems of Africa is going to be just this need, the, mm. our, our need yes. for technical assistance, That's for finance to develop our country, is that a fact, it's there, mm. nobody can doubt it. Where I, I hope the country is capable of providing this aid won't involve us in a problem is they must not exploit our need in order to get us involved in, in, in international politics which we, in which we are not, not really very much... Well, this brings, us, yeah. this brings yeah. us right back to Ralph Bunch again, well, doesn't it? Well, get back to Barbara's question. <laughs> well, yeah. we'll take uh, it in order. Uh, because your husband, Barbara Commander Jackson, is um, very much involved in just one of these... Um, the Commissioner for Development. Uh, the schemes, yes. And I wonder if you wouldn't say um, a word about the Walter River Project. Uh, well, the, the point is, uh, Ghana isn't entirely typical of the problem because owing to the, owing to the fact that the cocoa crop yes. is owned by the peasant farmer and is not an That's external it. plantation crop, a very large part of the money from cocoa has uh, stayed in the country. Point number one. Point number two, cocoa has remained high since the war and therefore it hasn't suffered from these enormous ups and downs of primary prices, which is the thing I know that Mr. Nereoli must feel very strongly about because we give capital on one hand and then say whoop, down goes the price yes. and all the capital is all virtually capital gone is again. Virtually gone. Uh, this is, this is a very curious way of running a railway, as they say. Yes. Well, uh, in, but Ghana doesn't quite have that problem. 
But Ghana, on the other hand, has got a large resources in bauxite, and the whole of the west coast of Africa has got this tremendous supply of potential hydroelectric power, which would be a potential for growth and for development on such a scale that you could consider the transformation of economies on the basis of this power. And where, pray, do they get the capital from? Well, now, the Volta scheme, I think, is a perfect example of how not to do things, because every five years, this scheme has been in the forefront of Western discussion, how they're going to do it, how it's going to be essential. Then we have a moderate recession. Everyone says, oh, heavens, we've got so much bauxite, we've got so much aluminum. Of course we can't do it. Down goes the scheme again. And I just wait, I must confess, for the day when the Russians begin to get thoroughly interested in Africa. Because when they do, then this whole question of Western primary prices that go up and down like this, and Western interest in development that goes up and down with our trade recession, going to look very, very stupid. That's all I can say. In other words, we need a policy. You've raised one of the hardest problems that the West is up against, haven't you? Because we have tried all kinds of marketing boards and price stabilization programs, and on the whole, up until now, we've fallen flat on our faces. I don't think we've tried awfully hard. Well, that's the point I was going to raise. Haven't haven't we still got a a little distance yet to go? I was talking with a group of economists recently who who took this position. No one of them was willing to say, this is the way to do it. But they all said, this is a problem that we can with ingenuity and the desire to do it solve. Now, you put your finger up with a desire. Yes. Now, what I think is lacking is that, yes. that, that the Western powers have simply not just faced up to the problem of capital for Africa. They either do it on an ex-metropolitan, ex-colonial basis, or they do it on a, a private venture capital, which won't go in because they think things are insecure, or they rely on export income, which goes up and down. Well, that's what you just said. They think things are insecure. Um, And that is one of the troubles that we've watched for a long time in South America um, and going to see it in countries of Africa. Um, Capital, which is private capital, um, is going to be very uncertain. It's, It's on and off because it doesn't feel that it's risking in a secure spot. That's one reason why I think Ralph Bunch comes in, because I believe that this will do much better uh, when it comes through an organization um, where many people are involved. An international organization. An international through the, through organization. Through the United Nations, I, yes. I would say. I think that's what you were yes. going to raise a moment ago. The question of what is commonly defined as uh, the issue of uh, multilateral versus bilateral aid. Uh, Both in technical assistance and even in capital investment. Yes, but don't let's kid ourselves that nothing's going to come through the United Nations unless the capital-rich countries have decided to do it. <laughs> yes. So, yes. I mean, I would go one step behind and they say they haven't have yet decided no, to do haven't. it. Well, but they, I think they, they have to be brought to do it that way. Unless they're willing to do it on they, their own. They move slowly, but they, they do move. In the last uh, couple of years, we've had action in addition to the regular technical assistance program on the special fund for capital development which Paul Hoffman heads on uh, OPEX, this uh, operation to provide uh, high-level executive personnel to uh, govern new governments that need it. Uh, it means a little addition to uh, the assistance. And the International but, uh, Development Association, if properly if, developed, if properly could, developed could do the same thing. Yeah. But uh, I think I should mention that the um, the African states, and uh, some of them not yet independent as associate members, uh, meeting in Tangier at the end of uh, 
January in the Economic Commission for Africa were overwhelmingly in, in, in favor of, um, of international uh, uh, multilateral or United Nations aid yeah. instead of bilateral. Is I'd like to hear... It that takes this sort of colonial taint off? Well, well, not, not the colonial one alone. Not the colonial one alone. There is the colonial one where the, the metropolitan power after colonialism number one is off, they want to use colonialism number two, which is an economic one. There is that one, and which we resent. But the other one is in the world in which we find ourselves now, of a communist world and, and a non-communist world. Mm -hmm. We get involved in the politics yeah. of this rivalry, and, and our need for capital, for aid, is exploited to force us into one of the blocks or yeah. another. Mm -hmm. and, and we feel, for those two reasons, to avoid, again, a continuation of a new colonialism, and to avoid getting into issues which to us are not really the issues. The issues now in Africa are to raise the standard of living of our people. Not the well, doesn't that bring and, 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 and therefore we feel channeling You're not an aid in the Cold through War, a I United think. Nations mm -hmm. agency is the answer. If, if the nations are genuine in doing this, why, why do they want to compete about it? They can put all the money uh, and, and all the aid through a United Nations agency and, and let the, the, the needing countries get the money from well, the And, and uh, used most efficiently. Most efficiently. Why don't we now face the difficult question? I don't believe any of us particularly wants to dive into the problem of communism and the problem of, of East versus West in Africa, but it's on the minds of a great many people in this country, and we probably ought to face it head on. May I say, How this, may yes. I say this, much yes. more on the minds of the people in this country it's than on the minds of the people of Africa. 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 Exactly. Exactly. You don't counter it. I would say there's one aim that we should have in the West, and that is by every means in our power to keep the Cold War out of Africa, yes. and well, not to consider our policies in these terms at all. In that case, since, since you're all agreed on that, and since I also agree with you, let me play the devil's advocate and argue the other side of the case for a moment against my own position. Uh, we have here uh, probably only one uh, case where communism in Africa has become an issue in the news, which is Guinea, with, uh, what is it, $35 million that Mr. Khrushchev has loaned to Guinea, and I believe now the, the Soviet Union has tied up about 60% of the exports of, of And they Guinea. printed the banknotes. To, to a great many people, and they printed the banknotes, to a great many people in this country, uh, that raises the kind of warning which the United States didn't want to have to face after World War II, but found that it had to face. Namely, uh, the question of infiltration, which is, in actual fact, uh, a more serious problem than many of us are, are willing to recognize. Why have we such it, a problem why here? Should, why should it, uh, since you're playing the role of devil's advocate, maybe you'd answer this question. Um, why should it uh, be considered so? in view of the fact that uh, one reads uh, regularly in the press that uh, trade between the United States and the Soviet Union is increasing? Well, I think the answer to that, which, which probably would be given, is simply that if the communist system managed to get its hooks uh, sufficiently far into a country economically, so that it would be able to uh, play it like a fish on the end of a line, so to speak, then it would be able to use that for its political but, advantage. But there's only one condition under which that would be the case, and that would be if the West uh, merely said, well, we now will have nothing more to do with Ooh. this country. Yes. Well, as a point of fact, we've heard this. We heard this when Khrushchev first went into India. We heard it when he first lent money to Indonesia. We heard it when there was a barter deal <coughs> with Ceylon and Burma. And we heard it, heaven knows, last year about Iraq. The thing with looking at all these countries is quite clear. They have continued to be themselves. 
And I think that Africa should have the benefit of well, that. I, I, uh, I think you must recall <laughs> the headlines when, uh, some years ago, when it was agreed by India that the Soviet Union was to build a steel mill. Yes, yes. Oh, my. yes, exactly. On the mm. other hand, uh, just, just to argue the point one small step further, I think it probably is a fact, although I myself as an individual have been very uncomfortable about the American containment policy, that it probably succeeded in holding the line uh, out through the Asian areas until those countries themselves were able to reach the point which they have reached now, where they understand the problem that they're up against and are willing to take a position I against the I disagree there. I must confess, I entirely disagree. I don't think it had anything to do with holding the line in Asia. I think containment did something quite definite in Europe, but that's different. Uh, and I just don't think it's relevant. In, the relevant thing in Africa is that Africa should be able to grow and develop and get going. And if we have the right policies, there's absolutely no reason why Cold War situations I must say, I don't like this attitude of the West hammering on communism and mm. communist infiltration in Africa mm. and all this yeah, yeah. business. What has communism to do with, with, with that? In the first place, at present, it's not an issue at all. But in the second place, it does no good to the Western powers themselves. The, here we are, needing assistance, and the Western powers, in actual fact, are saying, if it had not been for Moscow, we don't look at Africa at all. But, but Moscow is there, now we must look at Africa, because if we don't do it, the communists will come in. Now, let, let me put the, the, the question, the question you, you put about uh, uh, Guinea getting some assistance from Russia. Supposing I got some assistance from the United States of America. Is this infiltration? Is this what the, the United States well, intend? Infiltration? Connecting? There is an inconsistency about it, as a matter of fact, because uh, Ethiopia has received uh, assistance that, from... Is that uh, American but infiltration? It, but no one is claiming that uh, Ethiopia uh, is subject to that in But in Guinea, well, it's different, you see. <laughs> just just to, now to switch around in exactly the opposite direction, is it perhaps possible, and are we saying here, that the continent of Africa might give the United States and American foreign policy its first chance to deal with the problems of developing countries without having to raise the communist bogey and to turn its back on what obviously has been one of the bitterest aspects of our relationship with, uh, uh, with many of the countries uh, which are in an uh, unaligned position in, in Asia. I agree with you if you eliminate the word first. Yes. <laughs> I have, I have said, I've said myself to Make some, some right. of my American friends that um, if I had a few communists in my pocket in Tanganyika, I'd wave them. And wave them. I don't have them. I don't They'd know what I'm going to do. money, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an old story about that, you know, it's a way to get aid. That's <laughs> very good. <laughs> that is a story that should be told, because here he is. He'd like to have them to wave you when he's trying to get aid. Yes. But still, all the same, I do think in fairness now to the Western governments who have also to say that in, in the case of India, which I've followed very closely, steadily, steadily over the last 10 years, the realization has come that if the Indian plan is worth backing, it's worth backing because it is the Indian plan, period. And I would say that this is the attitude that we must have for Africa. Africa is worth helping to develop because it's the main interest of the Africans to do it and to get ahead. In other words, the best have... policy for the United States is to encourage non-alignment and the individual integrity of African countries. And I, I, would, I, would say, I would say there is another thing to be remembered. 
Uh, and I would like to ask you, uh, Ralph Bunch, and that is, isn't Africa at present offering an opportunity to young America? Because after all, the people who are going to be important in Africa, many of them are going to be young. Isn't it offering to young America, if they are willing to take it, an opportunity for service, which we have not had, perhaps, in a long while before? I, I fully agree. I think it's a, a wonderful opportunity. I think what's happening in Africa today is just about the most exciting thing in the world to, today. There's a great need for assistance, uh, trained people of all kinds. Uh, I could only wish that we in this country had uh, much more knowledge of Africa than we have. We're only awakening to it now. I think our, our schools, our colleges, our universities are very delinquent in this regard because uh, there's very little taught anywhere in our schools about uh, Africa. There's very little opportunity for Americans to learn about it. They're beginning to read about it in the press because it's news, but the, there's no background of knowledge about it. Uh, which prepares our people to take full advantage of these opportunities. Could I put in a little cynical word at this point, and that is that although I think it's absolutely true, and particularly in the whole field of education, there could be a tremendous amount of useful interchange of help given to Africa by sending technicians and people of quality. The fact remains that unless we make some changes in our methods of promotion back home, they won't go. Because a young by man... promotion back home, uh, what, what do you mean? About a young that? man in a university, he may be exactly the kind of person who could do a splendid job uh, in, say, East Africa. He, to be useful, he should stay there five years because, you know, I think Mr. Neareri will agree, these experts who come in for six months, they might just as well stay home. They really should. But five years, good. You can make a contribution. And then when you come back at the end of five years, who's headmaster at the local high school? It isn't you. Mm. In other words, <laughs> you, you, you lose this continuity. And I think that if both education institutions and business firms would make it a rule that for the upper reaches of administration, people would have had to serve abroad. You'd get better people. At the same time, you would improve the quality of top leadership. And this is perhaps interesting I'd, as well. I'd endorse that most heartily and say we could uh, use the same principle in the United Nations. <laughs> well, I, I think you're right. I think that in the United States, that's one of the big changes we need, an understanding that anyone who is willing to give a certain amount of time in a nation outside of their own country has a certain credit given them for that at home that it's a regular procedure that they are considered on a higher level when they return for the simple reason that they're doing a great deal for their own country our great trouble is that we don't know anything about africa well, this we don't know anything this would help too uh, mrs roosevelt wouldn't it too to solve what I suppose we refer to nowadays somewhat loosely as our ugly American problem. Yes. So many Americans go over to these countries, not by any means uh, the people that we would like to send, of the, of the quality that we would like to send, or with the training and experience that we would like to send, and they find themselves maladjusted and complaining about their status in the local consulate and uh, wondering when they can get out of this awful place in order to get somewhere else. You spoke about the younger people a moment ago. It seems to me that the younger people in this country, as I see them going around from schools and colleges, are ready for this kind of thing. They're the ones who want to do it. Well, they're the ones who are, who are very anxious to do it, if they get the chance. I'd love to ask um, Mr. Nayeri about an idea which I must say I, I think is immense importance for Africa, and I'm sure that uh, Ralph will agree, and that is that we don't really have, attached to the UN, a really high-grade pool 
of administrative civil servants of high quality who can feed in over the next 25 years, who can help uh, in, in, in governments in Asia, Africa, Latin America. I would add Europe, for heaven's sake, because I can think of a number of governments that could need, need some help there, too. Uh, just Don't omit the Western Hemisphere. No, <laughs> but just have this idea that there is a trained body of men on whom governments can call if they need someone. Don't you think this would be a helpful it thing? exactly the same thing. I mean, you, 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 you know Ghana, for instance. Ghana had to retain some British civil servants there. We have been appealing ourselves to the European civil servants in Tanganyika to remain after independence. Now, this again, I mean, Guinea is another typical example where the French just pulled out. Yeah. And here was Guinea left out without, 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 without people. Yeah. Now, a, a pool at the United Nations, if the United Nations could work for us as a, as a labor exchange for this getting... Is, this the, the, but, but this is exactly this, the purpose of OPEC. But, yeah, but I must that's, say that actually, it's, that's, it's, uh, that's I've, I've heard, I've heard yeah. people at the United Nations... But, uh, there's one, one thought I think also we ought to make. Uh, this is sort of... Warning to the American public as to what may happen in Africa on the economic front, uh, because this will again involve their appraisal of what's happening there. Uh, I think it's inevitable that in Africa, economic progress and uh, considerable economic progress has been made in the last uh, decade, uh, that uh, this will more and more involve action by government, initiative by government rather than by private entrepreneurs. The governments will be taking, taking the place of private entrepreneurs, uh, not only in planning, in investment operations, and even in managerial uh, work. And so this may very easily be misinterpreted. I love how I agree, and I do think there's nothing that one can say uh, uh, to, uh, to America on this subject that is more important than this. In the situation of the underdeveloped areas, the important thing to remember is that what private enterprise needs is firm government action, affirmative yeah. government action, and big government action. Because if you don't have that in these countries, you will have no development at all. Therefore, this idea that there's a conflict between the two is nonsense. Is not. I think the American people, on the whole, have, have passed that hurdle, particularly in the case of so. India. They're recognizing <laughs> that they have to work with government. There's also a very interesting wrinkle, uh, which has come up recently. It's been suggested by a number of Americans notably Donald David of the Ford Foundation, that uh, American private concerns could be very profitably hired on a contract basis by governments in Africa, for example, so that they are entirely subject to the African government, to the conditions, to the government setting the conditions under which they operate, so the government has complete control from its point of view. Meanwhile, the private company under contract uh, brings in its technicians and uh, its know-how and its management and all the rest of it. That seems to be a, a fairly well, promising. But that, of course, is something that is, uh, take the Kariba Dam, that's exactly how it's been built. I yes. mean, the Kariba Dam is government and World Bank money uh, and a, a very large Italian firm doing the building. I mean, this is, we this is a common, I mean, this is common form. We haven't said a word about federation and the federal <laughs> question in <laughs> Africa. You have we only, haven't only a few minutes. Let Mr. Nadal say Please. What, what can I say about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, is it coming? <laughs> is it coming or isn't it? Well, uh, could you tie up with it also some comments on what we commonly hear as Pan-Africanism? No, all, all I can say, I mean, in the one minute left... No, you have seven minutes. minutes. You have three minutes. That uh, there is a sentiment of oneness in Africa which you don't find anywhere else in any other continent. That one, we don't have to take credit for it. It has been imposed upon us by the colonial situation itself. Uh, 
the states which are going to receive independence are the colonial ones, which were cut out by the colonial powers. The tendency will be for these states to group themselves together in bigger units. Where this eventually will lead to, I don't know, I can't tell. But the tendency will be towards bigger groupings. At the moment, people seem to be somewhat discouraged about federalism. They're saying that some of the early experiments uh, in this direction or moves in this direction have failed. It seemed to me that this was uh, being pessimistic too soon. Where? 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 Where, have Where? They Where have they failed? Well, there was always the question raised of Ghana and Guinea oh, and... Oh, good heavens. There have been the problems of Mali. There have been several cases of where... Uh, oh, no, I don't think... But the truth is that we haven't started yet. The biggest yes. federation in, in Africa is Nigeria, which yes. has not been given a chance yet. And yes. I think it's going to be a great success. Well, I don't want to cut this off, but I'm, there's one question I'm just dying to ask the UN uh, Julius uh, here no 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 uh, before we w wind up uh, because I, I want to check his views with my own impressions and observations I think it's very important on this uh, month-long trip uh, to Africa despite all the ferment going on there I was impressed by the fact that talking with Africans west central east north uh, there's not the slightest uh, evidence anywhere of any racial feeling, of any racial animosity, even in areas where there was actual friction and conflict. And uh, I, 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 think that's, question I think that's a very encouraging thing. Do you agree that there is no, no racial feeling on the part of the Africans? I, I think we have been able to distinguish the colonial issue from the racial issue. Right. Right. May I put in a word there for West Africa from Ghana? This is yes. absolutely true of Ghana. Yes. There is no racialism. Very again, well, no. <laughs> again, this has been created in the minds of people who've looked on from a distance and yes. who don't really know the facts. That's right. Mm -hmm. Brings us back to the fact that we ought to be studying Africa just as we are this afternoon, somewhat more carefully. Yes. Now, you, you, have, uh, you have, I think, laid the fears of a great many uh, people today. They have much uh, less to fear in some ways by the answer to that question. You really feel there is no racial trouble going to arise. Counted not the least uh, racial animosity anyway. I would go yeah. further than that. I would say that in, in Ghana, you have a society where you reach the blessed stage in which people aren't even bothering to think about well, it. Well, now I have to say that our time has come to a close. And I have to thank you very much, Mr. Mariela, for coming to us today from far away. And you, Barbara Ward, Lady Jackson, we are very grateful to you. And also to you, Ralph Bunch, because I know how busy you are and how hard it is to come away. And so I thank you too, Mr. Davis, who are with us each time. And it has been a great pleasure. And now I want to say that next month we will talk about the picture, the image of the United States abroad. Until then, au revoir. Welcome back, and that was a rare archival audio file of a panel discussion uh, featuring uh, Mwalimu Julius Nereri. Uh, that was recorded in 1960, uh, the year of Africa, and of course, um, a number of issues were being discussed uh, in terms of the role of the United States uh, versus the role of the Soviet Union uh, in Africa's development. Uh, the whole question of a one-party state as opposed to a multi-party system, and also the issue of the character 
of national uh, economic development uh, within the newly independent African states. Now, that was recorded uh, three years uh, prior to the formation of the Organization of African Unity, which was founded in May 25th of 1963 with 33 uh, member states. Today, the OAU, uh, which has been transformed to the African Union, consists of 55 member states, 54 of which are independent, one of which still remains under a colonial domination, and that is the Western Sahara, still being occupied uh, by the Kingdom of Morocco and uh, the much-anticipated and even United Nations uh, approved uh, national referendum on the future of the Western Sahara uh, has never been carried out over these uh, decades. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And this last segment is focused on uh, the upcoming 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union. Uh, Finally, uh, we want to uh, commemorate uh, tomorrow, which is the 75th anniversary of Nakba Day, uh, which is the Palestinian disaster. Uh, It represents the 75th anniversary of the formation of the State of Israel, uh, which, of course, signified uh, the national oppression and solidified the removal and uh, suppression of uh, the Palestinian people. Let's listen to an address uh, from uh, the Palestinian, uh, the State of Palestine, uh, at the United Nations this, this last past September, at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City. Assembly will hear an address. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Mahmoud Abbas, President of the State of Palestine. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Mahmoud Abbas, President of the State of Palestine, and to invite him to address the Assembly. In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, Your Excellency Chaba Korochi, President of the General Assembly, Your Excellency Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, ladies and gentlemen, heads and members of delegations, may the peace of God be upon you. I am addressing you today on behalf of more than 14 million Palestinians whose fathers and ancestors have lived the tragic Nakba 74 74 years ago, and they are still living the spillovers of this Nakba, which which is a humiliation for the whole humanity, and especially for those who have conspired, planned, and executed this heinous crime. More than 5 million Palestinians have been living under the Israeli military occupation 
for more than 54 years. And I would like to tell you today, on behalf of the Palestinians, whom I am proud to belong to, that our trust in the possibility of achieving a peace based on justice and international law is unfortunately regressing because of the Israeli occupation policies. Do you want, ladies and gentlemen, to smother whatever hope we still have? It is clear, ladies and gentlemen, that Israel, which is ignoring the resolutions of the international legitimacy, has decided not to be our partner in the peace process. It has undermined the Oslo Accords, which it had signed with the PLO. It has and still is through its current policies, which are premeditated and deliberate, destroying the two-state solution. This proves unequivocally that Israel does not believe in peace. It believes in, the, in imposing a status quo by force and by aggression. Therefore, we do not have an Israeli partner anymore to whom we can talk. Israel is thus ending its contractual relation with us. And it is making the relationship between the state of Palestine and Israel a relationship between an occupying state and an occupied people, nothing more. Therefore, we will only deal with Israel as such. And we call upon the international community to deal with it as such as well. Israel has chosen that itself. We did not make that choice. Israel made that choice. Israel is launching a frantic campaign to confiscate our lands, to build settlements, to loot our resources, as if this land is empty and has no owners, exactly as it did in 1948. Israel is giving total freedom to the army and to the terrorist settlers who are killing the Palestinian people in broad daylight, looting their land and their water, burning and demolishing their homes, compelling them to pay for the demolition, or forcing them to destroy their homes with their own hands and uproot their trees, all this with an official protection. Can you imagine what is happening? Israel is telling the Palestinian people, either you demolish your house or I will demolish it myself. 
but demolish it yourself with your own hands it's better because if I demolish it you will have to pay the cost of the demolishing have you ever heard about this can you imagine what is happening this is what is taking place I have to demolish my house or they demolish my house and they make me pay for it furthermore the Israeli government has authorized the establishment of Jewish racist terrorist organizations exercising terrorism against our people. They have provided them with protection while they are aggressing the Palestinians and calling to expel them from their homes. On top of these terrorist organizations, I mention the Hilltop Youth, Price Tag, Lehava, Temple Guardians, and many others. These terrorist organizations are being led by members of the Israeli Knesset, by members of the Israeli legitimacy. And in this context, we call upon the international community to list these terrorist organizations on the international terrorism list. This is the only place they deserve. Israel did not leave us any land on which we can establish our independent state in the frame of its frantic settlement expansion. Where will our people live in freedom and dignity? Where, will our, where can we build our independent state that will live in peace with its neighbors? We want to live in peace with them, with them, with Israel. Where will we establish our independent state to live in peace with them. The settlements unfortunately constitute 751,000 or 25% of the total population, 25% in the West Bank, the Palestinian land which remains for us. Israel is killing our people with impunity, as it did with the Palestinian journalist Shirin Abu Akli. You have all heard of Shirin Abu Akli. She was killed with the bullets of a sniper. It means that the sniper deliberately killed her, and Israel recognized that the sniper recognized that he did kill her. And besides her Palestinian nationality, she also has the, nation, the American nationality. And I would, I dare the United States to prosecute those. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the State of Palestine uh, President uh, Mahmoud Abbas speaking. Uh, last year at the United Nations uh, General Assembly. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, 
just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We're going to close out with the music of Miles Davis uh, from a tribute to uh, Jack Johnson. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Thank you.